with you something that possibly should be some, certainly more at the heart of our core doctrines than what it is to this day. And we're going we're gonna to read this. Finally, it says, then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So it seems as if Paul here is writing to the Thessalonian believers concerning how their daily walk should be lived out before God, something that should be reflected, perhaps a life change. How many believe that when you're born again, there's a life change? That takes place inside of you. And so Paul here begins to give them encouragement and instruction. He said, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And that's a great point. I could preach on that. We think that in the New Testament, there's no commandments. You know, that was all under the law, that old evil entity, the law we think about. I'm telling you, there are more commandments in the New Covenant than there are in the Old Covenant. The difference is you now have a power dwelling inside you. We just sang about it in song to actually keep the commandments of God. Whereas in the Old Covenant, we lack that indwelling Holy Spirit. And so he says, for this is the will of God. You've ever prayed for the will of God? Who's ever just said, God, Father, I need your will to be done in my life. Show me thy will. Reveal to me your will. Matter of fact, if I were to start a series, I'd probably get more response because oftentimes we live our life in a gray uh, area of, of wondering, am I really in the will of God? So here is the Apostle Paul said, I'm going to tell you the will of God. I'm going to make it simple for you. It's right here. He said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, many of you don't necessarily even know what sanctification is, and we're going to kind of delve into that here today. And then he adds an addendum to that same thought. So here's the will of God for your life. As you're learning how you ought to walk and to please God, he said, God wants to sanctify you. And he has already done so in one sense, but there's a depth to that, and we'll talk about it shortly. He said that you should also, the addendum is to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, certainly I could preach a long line along with the Apostle Paul. We know the Grecian culture that many of the first century churches were founded in were deeply sexual. And leap it forward 2,000 years, and we've re-arrived at that point even in the American culture. So you could easily say this is applicable in every church, irregardless of denominational structure, that we need to guard ourselves from sexual enticement and sin. Married, unmarried, come on somebody, young, old, it doesn't matter. We need to guard ourselves and live a sexually pure life. And I could preach and I could angle, but the whole context is not necessarily about the sexual immorality. So then he goes on. He said, each of us should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. How many of you know the Bible says that, that we have God's treasure in an earthen vessel? So we possess, we're in this vessel here. The Bible says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. So here Paul is using that similar analogy. He even used the term vessel in uh, writing to, the, uh, uh, to Timothy when he said that you are sanctified vessel. He said if you keep yourself from certain sins, he said you're sanctified and set apart for the master's use, comparing gold vessels to earthland vessels. And so, so we see this analogy that we're vessels and we need to possess it in sanctification and honor. And he contrasts it with, real quickly, he says, but not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God, I'm telling you, that ought to be thundered from every pulpit across America today. 
That listen, and, and I've, you know I've shared this with you many times, Ephesians 4 and 17, where it says, don't live like the Gentiles live who live in the futility of their mind. And the, the distinction, Paul is drawing a sharp distinction between those who do not know Christ, those who are not born again, those who are not children of God, and the children of God. He simply said, you don't live like the Gentiles because they're living in the futility of their mind. This passage, he said, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles because they don't know God. How many of you know we have a governor within us called the Holy Spirit? You know what a governor is? I have a Kawasaki mule. And what's cool about a Kawasaki mule is it's made for people that are getting older like myself. And it's contrasted with a Polaris. With a Polaris will go 60 miles an hour and you get hurt and injured. But on the Kawasaki mule, it is automatically governed. So about 25 miles per hour, it just shuts it down. I can't go any farther, faster than that. And I'm kind of glad of that, especially when my sons come over. And so with that, just very quickly, how many of you know the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us? We don't have to be like the Gentiles. The Gentiles, just gravi- they just gratify all their fleshly appetites at will. But see, we're do- we, we are controlled by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so we don't have to. How many of you know that's the context that Paul's dealing with here? Let's go farther. He said, so we shouldn't take advantage of our brother and defraud our brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we forewarned you and testified. Verse 7 says, God did not call us to uncleanness, but King James would say to holiness. New King James in holiness. God's called us to holiness. Let's go farther. Last verse, eighth verse. Therefore, he who rejects this so if you're like, oh, man, Pastor Brown, that's old-timey preaching. I don't have time for that. You know, tell me about how I'm going to be blessed today. Tell me about if I do this, I'll get a new car by the end of the week. If you're here today and you say, I, I, don't, I don't have time to hear this, then you're not rejecting me. I didn't write this. He said, if you reject this, you're not rejecting man, but you're rejecting God. Because God's given you His Holy Spirit. There's that governor dwelling on the inside of you so you don't have to live like the Gentiles live. A contrast. What I want to talk to you about today is a message I've entitled The Forgotten Doctrine. The Forgotten Doctrine. And I didn't answer it up there for you because it's mentioned three times in this passage in word. It's two translated one word. Another word is holiness. But it's the same word in the Greek. It's sanctification. The lost doctrine. I'll have to define it for you here in a moment because many of us in the modern church have never taken the time, nor have we been exposed by us pastors uh, effectively enough to let this be a part of our spiritual DNA. And I'm telling you, we're missing the mark along the way. I'm going to challenge you. Now remember, let's go back to the eighth verse. Put that back up there if you would with me one last time if you can. The eighth verse says that if you reject this, say, Pastor, you're trying to minute. No, I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. If you reject this, if you turn the channel, if you turn it off, if you mute me right now, and then you start thinking, but then, then you're not rejecting me, but you're rejecting God. Because God wants you to be, be, not only be sanctified and set apart, but live. Remember how Paul started this p- passage? What did he say? He said, how you ought to walk and to please God. Father, I love you. I'm humbled to share the word of God with you. And I pray that you would bless the listening audience, including the speaker today, that the message that would go forth would resound deeply in my spirit as well. And I too would be challenged.
by the testimonies and the doctrine that's going to be talked about in this room today. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. Now, I know it's kind of cloudy outside and raining and all those things, but that does not mean that you get a free pass from participation and response. So I want to challenge you. You've got to have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. You have to. Set your heart to this. This is the will of God for you. I have a clear conviction. If you're with us on Wednesday nights, as many of you are, we began studying several weeks ago the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Now, the teachings of the Apostle Paul that we've delved into are not necessarily beginning at Romans and ending at Philemon or the book of Hebrews. But rather, we're choosing the doctrine. We're just extracting. We made a list collectively as a group. I put 35 doctrinal statements or doctrinal issues or items that the apostle would deal with in his epistles. Then we narrowed them down to 10 or 11 and tried to rank them in essence of a, uh, uh, not necessarily of importance, but re- uh, perhaps in the, uh, the measure that they're addressed in the New Testament. And we began with grace, which is through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. I mean, we believe that today. We're grateful. We started there. And we spent several weeks just trying to learn, gleaning, taking theological truths and making them practical to each one of us. And from there, we moved into the doctrine of justification. And we broke it down in the original language. And we discovered that to be justified is to be fully acquitted from our crimes before God and be declared innocent in the sight of God, which is the follow-on, which is righteousness. But from there, though, rather than go into what I believe the next flow in the order of this, of this doctrinal teaching, which would be sanctification, I leaped ahead and I went into the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a Pentecostal by nature, then as you're Pentecostal, anytime you reference the Holy Spirit, immediately you think of speaking in other tongues or you think of the gifts of the Spirit. But I've chosen not to necessarily allow the entirety because Paul's teaching on the Holy Spirit was not confined to just 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. How many know the work of the Holy Spirit is far greater and far uh, uh, more diversified than just the gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, right? So with that said, uh, from there, though, it's still in my heart to begin to talk about this doctrine today in sanctification. Here's the reality. The work of the Spirit of God, as realized in the Pentecostal church, came to us came to us as a result of a great doctrinal emphasis on sanctification. Now, let me say that because I don't know if many of you caught that because I'm going to take you into the history a little bit more carefully of the, uh, not only of the Assemblies of God, but of far deeper than this today because sometimes you need to do that. How many know sometimes you got to stop and look back? Not look back in the sense of negative uh, belief that, that alters your future, but you've got to look back to see where you're at today as a result of either the belief system. I mean, I believe I would to God in America today that many would look back at the faith of our founding fathers when they formed, come on, a separation from Great Britain and gave us the Constitution. How many believe that would be a, a nice thing if our modern leaders would say, let's look back and let's see if we can uh, understand the original intent just a little bit. So I want to talk to you about being Pentecostal. And you know Pentecostal is a diverse label that's given in today's time. It wasn't diverse 100 years ago, but it's very diverse because Pentecostalism is very diversified. 
today from charismatic to full gospel to classical Pentecostal to spirit field, all different branches and different types of churches and fellowships. But the result is, is that today one of the largest arms of the body of Christ and the fastest growing arm of the body of Christ today is Pentecostalism. From a humble beginning of over 100 years ago to where we are today, the movement has spread to over around 600 million adherents worldwide. That's very exciting. Why is that? Because the Bible says God promised to pour His Spirit out upon all flesh. Come on, somebody. And at the same time, Pentecostals have had a passion for missions, such as the Assemblies of God. And we don't want to just sit. We want to be sent. And we go into all the world and preach the gospel. But as doctrinal differences formed, so did distinct denominations related to this forgotten doctrine, the doctrine of sanctification. Because Pentecostalism was birthed out of a people group that believed in this doctrine of sanctification. I'll give you more information in a moment. But oddly enough, within one half mile, by the way the crow flies, of this building right here are three other churches that grew from the very same root. If you go up on the hill, you'll find the Methodist church. If you go right down the street, you'll find the Nazarene church. And if all you do is cross over Equipment Street behind us, you'll find the church of God. And so all four of these denominations uh, evolved from the same familiar root. And that root was the teachings of John Wesley. The teachings of John Wesley as it, as it centered around um, a holiness doctrine that I'm going to get to in just a moment. Two of the churches that I just listed to you would today be listed as Pentecostal churches, the Church of God and the Assemblies of God. The other two, the Methodist Church and the Nazarene Church, are not opposed to the gifts of the Spirit but do not necessarily promote them. And the reality is this, the history of the modern-day Pentecostal movement was birthed in the labor room of the holiness movement. And the holiness movement evolved from Methodist and Wesleyan teachings. And that's what I want to talk to you about initially. I'm going to bring a picture of John Wesley for just a moment. If you ever get a time, and I've not studied Wesley in great detail, but when I was new to Pentecostalism, I wanted to trace its root. And, and I found a lot of its root in the teachings of John Wesley. Now, Methodism evolved from Wesley's practice of being methodical. Did y'all know that? That's where we get the term Methodist, that he and his followers were so methodical. He fasted every Tuesday and every Thursday. It was such a, a, a methodical approach of his relationship to God and his spiritual disciplines that they became the Methodist. One of John Wesley's central doctrines, perhaps his central doctrine, was what he called a second work of grace. A distinct and subsequent work of grace that was subsequent to justification and regeneration. Justification and regeneration considered to be uh, of one experience whereby the Holy Spirit as a person puts their faith in Christ, believes Christ for salvation. There is regeneration and the acquittal that I mentioned to you previously. But John Wesley believed that there was a second work of grace. This second work of grace was called entire sanctification. And sanctification defined in the Bible is that which is set apart for God's purposes. It in essence is taking something that was previously unholy, but once it's been sanctified, it is now set apart for God's eternal purposes. Does that make sense to y'all today? Are y'all with me? That was a terrible amen. 
I hope I'm not confused. Is it the handsome pig girl on there? Go ahead and wipe him away. So they're distracted by John Wesley up there. So real quickly, in entire sanctification, the old Adamic nature in the theology of Wesley is that the old Adamic nature in the heart of the believer is put to death. He or she is then cleansed from original sin. They're not just forgiven from that sin, but they are cleansed from that sin, and thereby they are empowered to live a holy life, a God-pleasing life. Remember the doctrine of the Apostle Paul, chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. He said how you ought to walk and to please God. So Wesley had a revelation that what he believed was a distinct and subsequent work of grace in the heart of a believer where you would not only be forgiven from sin, but you would be cleansed from sin and sin would lose its power to dominate you. In essence, Romans chapter number 6, that sin shall not longer have a dominion over you because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. Now I'm telling you, that's a good place to say amen. Because we have people that profess faith in Christ that are still in the bonds of iniquity. And I'm telling you, Jesus Christ did not just die on the cross to forgive you of your transgression. He came to deliver you from your sin. Glory to God. So this doctrine, at least a measure of it, is just as vibrant today as it was, and just as relevant today as it was when John Wesley first preached it 300 some odd years ago. Or at least it ought to be. Let's go just a little bit farther. Not that the individual cannot sin, but that you are now, man or woman, is empowered not to sin. You don't have to sin. Man, I'm going to say that again. I believe that. I believe it. I don't have to. I, I, I can't say I don't, but I can say this. I don't have to. I, don't ha- I can yield to that indwelling spirit. Now, this message was readily received primarily through the evangelistic efforts of the circuit-riding preachers as it went from Great Britain all the way to here in these United States. And the, you know the old song, the circuit-riding preachers used to ride across the land carrying a, what, a, 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 a Bible in their hand and a gun on their lap. I can't get it right. I remember singing about it when I was a kid. The circuit-riding preachers. And they, and they Methodist. There was a time in the history of the United States that there were more Methodist churches than post offices. That if every community may have not had a post office, but every community had a Methodist church because of the fervent, vibrant desire for evangelism. But the reality is, is that doctrine, Wesleyan doctrine, was rejected by the Reformed churches, such as the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans. But it spread like wildfire during the camp meetings of the Second Great Awakening. Can I give you a little example of the, of, the, of the camp meetings of the Second Great Awakening? The actual term camp meeting came to us from the, uh, the Kentucky Cane Ridge Revival, which was held in the, uh, the late 1800s, when Daniel Boone and a group of other men began to call some ministers uh, to their area along a particular ridge, a cane ridge, to hold open-air meetings. And so people began to come in wagons, and they would camp out, and their pulpits were trees that were cut down, and they would stand on, that, on the stump of that tree, and they would preach. And that there was a particular revival that was so sovereign, so supernatural, that men and women began to come from afar. The, 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 the historical record is this, that there were times that horseback riders miles away would be going east but the revival was going on west and suddenly the horse would turn around and go west and they're pulling back on the reins pulling back on the reins they're kicking it and beating it and they can't stop it and that horse goes through brushes and and brambles and and over creeks and up hills and gets to the edge of the camp meeting and dumps the rider off and the rider crawls into the middle of the 
service and gets genuinely born again by the power of God. I tell you what, I'd like to see a revival like that in our generation. That's exciting to read about. And so that came as a result of that Wesleyan doctrine of, the, of, of sanctification. Now, some called that experience a crisis experience, where the believer experienced a crisis moment with God and his old Adamic nature and the need to be sanctified before God. But as with anything within religion, in the mid to late 1800s, within Methodism, divisions began to occur and as a result, numerous offshoots happened within Methodism. And of those offshoots, various holiness movements, some believe that the Methodist church at that day in the mid to late 1800s was going the wrong direction. So they offshooted. Are you all with me out there? Are you all following this today? I think if you all stay with me, it's got a good conclusion. Yet, yet most of all these holiness movement spinoffs held to the belief in the second work of grace. Don't forget that. The second work of grace, which was a belief in entire sanctification for the believer. Now, one such minister with a deeply held view of the second work of grace, entire sanctification, was Charles Parham. Put his picture on the screen for us today. Charles Parham was born in Iowa in 1873, and he held his first evangelistic services at the age of 15. So at 15 years of age, he feels compelled to begin to uh, start evangelistic ministry. He enrolls in a Methodist-affiliated Bible school. And while there, he gained a belief in Wesleyan doctrine of entire sanctification. He would leave before he graduated. From there, he would work with the Methodist Episcopal Church for a while, only to reject the Methodist Church because of its hierarchy and what he believed they controlled the ministers and their choice of sermon material. And so he established his own evangelistic ministry while maintaining the holiness movement's doctrine and emphasis. And he started a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas in 1898. And during this time period, his infant child, born just a few months earlier, grew gravely ill and was about to die when the child miraculously recovered. And when the child miraculously recovered, Charles Parham believed it was a result of answered prayer. And he believed in faith healing. And so he began to preach about the power of God. He was committed to preaching sanctification and also divine healing. During this time, reports of the charismatic gifts began to resurface around the world, especially in Great Britain. Now, today we live in a generation of instant communication where something can happen around the world and you can know about it by Twitter or by a Facebook post before I can even say the next thing I'm about to say right here in my sermon. And you can be notified. But in those days, it might take weeks or months for something that happened supernaturally for it to get around the world. And so he began to hear of pockets of the restoration of charismatic gifts beginning to resurface. If you've ever, have any of you have ever studied the history of Pentecostalism in the modern era? And you'll know that it didn't just happen in America, but especially in Great Britain, especially in Scotland, in Ireland. There are areas where the Holy Spirit was being poured out and people began to believe that the gifts of God had not passed. Remember, the church is just a few hundred years separated from the dark ages. 
where people didn't even have access to a Bible. They didn't have access to the revealed will and the Word of God. And they were hidden by the, the doctrine was hidden by the Catholic Church. And people lived in the dark ages. But with the Reformation came the awareness that God was still on the move. Come on, somebody. God is still on the move today. God is still moving. We are not cessationists in here today. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the prevailing gifts of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, that if you seek after and earnestly desire the best gifts, God will drop down gifts of the Holy Spirit even in your life today. I believe that with all of my heart. And so he's being, Charles Parham is beginning to hear about this. And so reports begin to come in of some folks speaking in other tongues. And as they're beginning to speak in other tongues, some people are labeling that the baptism in the Spirit. Now remember, Parham believes distinctly in Wesleyan doctrine of the second work of grace, entire sanctification, that many in his camp called that experience, that crisis experience, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I, Joe, 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 we were trained in in, uh, Assembly of God theology. We never even thought of that. We thought of the uh, baptism in the Holy Spirit as when someone received the endowment with power. But if you were brought up in Wesleyan holiness movement, then you'd been taught that 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 crisis moment was the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So some are struggling with it. Parham, though, has this Bible college. So it's right before the beginning of the new century. It's towards the end of the 1900s, uh, the latter few days, in the last few days of December 1900, before the beginning of the new year. He's about to go away for a few uh, days to preach, and he assigns his Bible. I've read this story many times. He's assigned his Bible students a task, and the task is while he is away, they're to study to search out what's the actual biblical evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They took that title, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so he goes away and he preaches and he comes back and he calls the class back together. And when they come back together, he says, what did you discover in your studies? And every student concluded that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, according to the book of Acts, the initial physical evidence would be that they would speak with other tongues. And so Parham contemplated this. So the, they had a watch night service on December 31st, 1900, and they prayed. And then they continued that watch night service the next night, the very first day of the new year of the new century. And in the middle of the watch night service, there was a little aged lady by the name of Agnes Osman. And Agnes said, I believe God for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And she asked Charles Parham, who himself did not have what we would call the baptism today, though he had received entire sanctification according to Wesleyan doctrine, laid hands on her with the other students. And when he laid hands on her with the other students, Agnes Osmond began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave her the utterance. And she continued to speak with other tongues to what she defines in her own own words, she believed she spoke perfect Chinese, and she was unable to speak in English for three consecutive days. Anytime she opened her mouth, she spoke in other tongues. And so from there, other students began to receive until even Charles Parham began to receive. And now he launches forth in his new evangelistic crusade. Not only is he preaching about divine healing, not only is he preaching about sanctification, but now he's discovered that he believes that there is a, not necessarily a second work or a third work of grace, but rather as a result of the second work of grace, the 
individual now sanctified is ready to receive the baptism in the Holy Ghost as evidenced by speaking in other tongues. And it creates a great fervor throughout the Midwest. And ultimately... Parham goes to Houston, Texas because he's had some success down there with evangelistic meetings. And so he opens another Bible school and he's teaching this doctrine. Now, this church family, you've got to see what's familiar to you was new to that generation. To what you were born in, that is totally foreign to that generation. And they are being really challenged to believe. For some, this is really creating controversy as they are challenging holiness movement churches, Wesleyan doctrine churches, that entire sanctification is the second work of grace. But that's not the end of all things. But there's something beyond it. That once the life is entirely sanctified before God, they are now ready to receive the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I know many of you that were brave up in the Pentecostal movement heard from days gone by this phrase saved, sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost and that was a theme that permeated that early uh, uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit so in 1905 he arrives in Houston, he erects another uh, Bible school and he starts to teach and in early 1906 there is a man by the name of William Seymour we've talked about him before, we'll put his picture up here now, William Seymour was born in 1870, his uh, uh, he's the son of emanci- is emancipated. Every now and then I said emaciated. You got to get it right. Emancipated slaves. He fled the South because of the violent, uh, you know, the violent uh, uh, response to the slaves being set free. And he goes up north for a while, and he eventually gravitates back, and he gets born again in a Methodist church or a Methodist Episcopal uh, uh, church. And from there, ultimately, God leads him to Houston, Texas, and he hears about the new Bible school. And so he arose in the new Bible school, and, and, and he's excited to learn. He's accepted the call to preach. He's blind in one eye, not from birth, but he developed smallpox, and that smallpox took the sight, I believe, of his, of his right eye. And or, I'm not for sure. It's one or the other. Just making sure I listen. And so, 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 so you just have to see he becomes an iconic figure. And so he's hungry to learn and to grow. And he's excited to be able to enroll in Charles Parham's Bible school. But because of the Jim Crow laws that, that are still holding the, 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 the South in racial division, he's not allowed into the classroom. But he's undaunted in this. He's hungry for God. When you're hungry for God, you won't even let racism keep you from the presence of God. You won't even let racism keep you from studying and learning and growing. He's willing. Charles Parham said, I'm not allowed to allow you to end the class because of the Jim Crow laws, but you can sit outside. And while sitting outside, he became convinced, even though he too has Wesleyan doctrine, even though he too practices and believes he's received the entire sanctification, he learns now of what's called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so he hasn't received it, but he believes in it. And oddly enough, in April of that year, he had re- or late March, he receives a call to go to Los Angeles, California and pastor a small holiness church. And so he readily accepts. And so he makes the journey from Houston, Texas to Los Angeles. And once there, he prepares for his very first sermon at his very first church that he's now the pastor of. And he's so excited. And he takes the pulpit because he's got a new revelation. He's preaching to holiness people. And he can't wait to tell them about the doctrine that's starting to sweep the Midwest. And this doctrine is, is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit will follow those have an entire sanctification or sanctified life. He preaches the message with all faith and passion. 
goes home, comes back that night only to find the doors to the church locked and the elders would not allow him to return. And they, to- they drove him from that place, not in, a, in an evil sense, but they just simply felt like that doctrine was contrary to holiness doctrine. But just a couple of people within his congregation that morning believed in what he said. And they invited him to come back to his house. And so they began to pray for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And on the 9th of April in 1906, as they were in the home, uh, uh, one of the homes of one of the former members of the Holiness Church, the, 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 the owner of the house received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And three days later, Brother Seymour receives the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And from there, others begin to receive, and others begin to receive. And soon, they can't meet in this house, they go to a larger house. Soon crowds begin to form. They have to go from inside the house to outside the house, and they're using the porch of the house as their pulpit and their platform like I'm standing on today. But so many people are thronging them because of the presence of God that's manifested. The porch collapses, and they realize they've got to find a new place. So they search, and they find an abandoned old African Episcopal church at 312 Azusa Street. I went by it a couple of years ago. It had previously been a livery stable, but it had been, it had been cleaned up from a livery stable. They gained access to it, and Brother Seymour lived in the top part and they held services in the bottom part and they held their first service in April of 1906 and when they did the crowds began to come and the next night and the next night and here's what history tells us that did you know for three consecutive years from 1906 to 1909 church was uh, experienced in that livery stable 365 days out of the year that sometimes that they had church 24 hours a day there were times that Brother Seymour, his pulpit was nothing more than apple crates or fruit crates there on the, on the platform. There were times he would bury his head in a crate for hours on end while he was waiting for the presence of God. People began to hear about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they, become to come, they began to come from all over the known world to receive what's called a modern-day Pentecostal experience. The record tells us that men and women would be walking down the street on the way to the church services and the Spirit of God would follow on them and they'd be baptized in the Holy Ghost. Two times the fire department responded to a call that flames were leaping up out of the building and they got there and the only thing happening was a church service inside. God was up to something, church family. The power of the Holy Spirit was being poured out fulfilling the prophetic word of Joel the prophet. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall be filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank God for it today. You can go and look back into history. It was a monumental move of God, a sovereign move of God. It involved, why, I tell you what, it was condemned by some because it was too racially inclusive. Because one writer, one historian said this, I love this. He said the, he said the race line was washed away in the blood. And in that services, it didn't matter whether you're black or white or Hispanic, whether you were male or female, whether you were rich or poor or young or old, the Spirit of God was being poured out upon all men everywhere. Thank God for it. A powerful move of God. But the believers in the, uh, in the doctrine such as uh, William Seymour believed and practiced the doctrine that was formed by Charles Parham, saved, sanctified, and that the power of the Holy Spirit then comes upon a sanctified life. Now, here are y'all with me? Am I preaching too long in here today? 
I can't finish. I got to finish this. I don't know what time. Can I not look? Right? It's raining outside. Let me finish in here, okay? Well, the story gets interesting, though. Somewhere in here in 1907, by the appearance of another gentleman. So there's a key figure that is often overlooked in this journey, and we've got to look at him today. His name is William Durham. And here's this picture today. Oddly enough, he was born at the same year as Charles Parham. And he was born in Kentucky, and, uh, and he accepted the call to preach. And he was first kind of integrated into the Baptist movement. But from there, he too was brought into the holiness movement. And he had a belief in sanctification, a, a, an entire sanctification work. And he eventually was given the pastorate of a church in Chicago. And in 1907, reports made its way to the Midwest about what God was doing in Azusa Street. And when he first heard about it, he first was skeptical of it. But then he said, you know what, I need something in my life. And so he made the journey. William Durham made the journey from Chicago, the church that he's pastoring, to Los Angeles. Now, did you know a few weeks ago we put our daughter Alyssa on a plane out of Springfield and flew her back to Los Angeles for $100? Shut up, I almost see you. Who would have thought that? Pastor Brown can't drive her out there for $100. And we put her on the plane that morning, and a few hours later, she stepped off the plane in Los Angeles. When William Durham was hungry for God, he most likely was on a train or a wagon. I'm telling you, when you really get hungry for God, come on, you'll, 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 you'll press through. He was hungry for something, and he got out there, and he found Brother Seymour to be a meek, and a special man who is kind in the presence of God, and he began to seek. Now, you know, it would be an awesome story if I said, you know, he received the baptism on the first day, but you know, he did not. And this ought to be an encouragement to many of you who've come to the front and said, oh, pastor, I've, I've prayed before. Did you know he was there for two weeks, day after day, hour after hour, seeking, praying, confessing, two solid weeks. Remember, churches, this ain't Sunday morning church, Wednesday night church, it's Sunday morning church. This is church Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, sometimes 24 hours a day. He's seeking God, and he's not received the baptism, but at the end of two weeks, you can go online and read his account of when the glorious power of the baptism and the Holy Spirit flooded his soul. And he was filled miraculously with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he goes back to Chicago and he takes this new Pentecostal message. And there's a revival that takes place. Well, we need a revival in Chicago today. Come on, somebody. He takes a revival back to Chicago. And, and it's so much that they begin to call Chicago, his church, the Azusa of the Midwest. But here's where the, the story takes an interesting turn, and I'll share it with you next Sunday. No, I will not. I'll share it with you today. It's very, it, this is the tipping point right here. This is where a change, this is where that some question what took place. There's one thing, though Durham believed in entire sanctification, he himself, he believed he had received it. But immediately after the baptism in the Holy Spirit, he said he could no longer preach it. And he went back to his church, and he studied it out. And he then rejected it doctrinally in this sense right here, in this sense. He believed that based upon the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, that sanctification 
as of being set apart from God, for God's purposes happen simultaneously as justification and regeneration. In essence, what he said was this, and I'm going to kind of shorten it for today. He, in essence, said this, that if you're genuinely born again by the blood, you're ready to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And you don't need this, not that he didn't disbelieve in entire sanctification. He did believe in it. He did not believe that it was a prerequisite to receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit. He called his new doctrine the finished work, the finished work of Christ. And so he began to preach it, and many began to believe it, and his church began to swell, but some began to reject it. The ones that began to believe it are the ones that came out of the Baptist movement and the Reformed churches, but the ones that were coming out of the holiness movement have been steeped in the doctrine of Wesleyan theology of saved and sanctified, and they could not reject that doctrine. So it created a major rift within early Pentecostalism to the degree that he himself went to Azusa Street hoping to preach and William Seymour forbade him from preaching at Azusa Street because he was going to preach the finished work of Christ. And the division became so strong that, listen to this, in 1912, January of 1912, remember Charles Parham, the one that first preached the baptism in the Holy Spirit, was so frustrated with Durham, he put out what he believed a prophetic prayer, and he said this, he said, if Durham's doctrine is right, then may God take his life. But if, if our doctrine is right, he said, if the, if the doctrine of entire sanctification is right, then let my God, or, or let, me, let me say it again, I've said, I mixed it up. If Durham is right, he said, let the Lord take my life. If we're right, let the Lord take Durham's life. That's a strong word, and it's an odd word, because in June of the self-same year, at 39 years of age, William Durham developed a head cold, and that head cold progressed to pneumonia, and he died in June of the very same year. And Charles Parham then spoke and said, God has answered our prayer. But here's, what the, the, here's the, the tipping point to the whole thing. Here's the tipping point. Jesus, I know I got a lot to say and I'm not finished, but I got I got to share this. He may have lost in that prophetic prayer, but he won in other ways. Because more began to believe in the finished work doctrine than the saved, sanctified and the Holy Spirit doctrine. Because in 1912 he passed, but his believers continued to follow. And in 1914 a call and the word and witness went out that a new fellowship would be formed in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And the founders of that movement believed in the finished work doctrine. And that group of men and women has grown today to be called the Assemblies of God. And the Assemblies of God have since taken that doctrine of the finished work of Christ and have helped it spread through Pentecostalism around the world. But there is an irony to this somewhere along the line. My question is, is have we thrown out the baby with the bathwater? That's the question that looms in front of us as modern-day Pentecostals today. Because you could poll the Assemblies of God today, and I dare say 75% could not even write one paragraph on what it means to be sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a doctrine that's become forgotten in our midst. 
It's a doctrine that, that we believe is a biblical doctrine, but it's not practiced. Here's what evolved from William Durham's teaching. It's called progressive sanctification. Now, here's the reality. William Durham believed in progressive sanctification, but he also believed in an instantaneous moment where a believer has a revelation that sin no longer has control over them. And you know what I've found over the years? Dr. Brassfield said this many years ago. He said, sometimes the truth looms right there in the middle somewhere along the line. And I want to say this today, and I'm not trying to resurface the controversy. I thank God for the finished work of Christ. And doctrinally, I believe that if you're genuinely born again, you're ready to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I believe that with all of my heart. If you're genuinely born again, there's nothing between you and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But I want to say this. Every believer ought to know how he ought to walk and please God. Every believer ought to be praying a prayer, God, sanctify my life. The things that have held me in bondage, the things that have have limited me, the things that have caused me to stumble ought not to cause me to stumble because greater is He. Come on, somebody. Greater is the power of God that's on the inside of me than the lust of my flesh. The power of the Holy Spirit gives me the ability to break the bondages of sin off of my life and I can live a free and God-pleasing life. If I can say anything to our modern Pentecostal movement birthed out of the fires of the Wesleyan holiness movement, we do need at some level a return to sanctification. It does not need to be a forgotten doctrine in our lives. We need to be separated from that which is evil and set apart for that which is good and that which is godly. Would you all stand up with me today? I've cut it short for the sake of time. But I'm going to, I was on page three. There's page, there's all the way to nine. Let's, would y'all do something? Would y'all come? Could y'all join me at the altar for just a moment here today? Can we do that today? Would y'all just join me? Say it's, I know it's 1204 and I know that it doesn't, you can start turning me off after a while. Of course, I did warn you. The Bible says if you reject this, you reject not men, but God who has called you. Sanctification is not something that is a choice. Well, I'll be sanctified or not sanctified. Sanctification is something that we do believe that the blood of Jesus does sanctify us and set us apart for God. But if you follow the theology of the Apostle Paul, your part is involved in this. Your will is involved in this. This is you yielding to the Holy Spirit. This is you being consecrated. Wesley called it a crisis experience. Other great leaders, had they didn't speak in tongues, but they had moments where God came over them and changed their walk and their life. They talked different from that moment. They walked in love from that moment forward. They, they were separated from that which is evil from that moment. There's, not, there's no replacing the doctrine of sanctification. I want to be honest with this today. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit with all my heart. And I don't believe that there's anything that will prevent you from receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit if you are genuinely born again. But I will say this, the flow and the function and the unction of God's Spirit will flow in far greater power in your life if you're living a sanctified life. We're not trying to recreate the legalism of days gone by. I don't want to put this in a bylaw or on the wall that says, here's what we define sanctified a sanctified life to look like. I know a lot of it is personal, but I think it grieves the Spirit of God when we don't bring the church into an awareness that God's called you, God's called you and set you apart to a holy and a holy lifestyle. 
Man, that demands change on our behalf, doesn't it? It does. Doesn't it grieve you? Doesn't it grieve you? When, when we think about our culture, some of the addictions that have kept us in bondage, some of the programs that genuine born-again believers watch, you know, in days gone by, they thundered from the pulpits about those things. And now you even mention something like that from a pulpit. You're a legalist. You're an old, you know, you're an old hellfire and brimstone preacher. You're not going to reach today's culture. You know what? Today's culture needs an infusion of power like a culture or a generation ago. And maybe if we, we're not setting apart the doctrine of finished work, but if we're simply saying, if we were to say, you know what? Durham, listen to this. Let's put this back together. Durham believed that to receive the baptism, Cheyenne needs the baptism. For example, she does it. She's got it. But, but with this, nothing would hinder her doctrinally. But that doesn't mean that she shouldn't seek God for how she ought to walk and please God. Just because she's Shatakai and Mosean shouldn't mean that she's going out here continuing to live a life in the flesh. That's what Paul said in the passage. He said, sanctification, you ought to know how. The Holy Spirit's dwelling inside you. Man, I would love to see a resurgence of the sanctification doctrine in the modern church. You know why? Here's what I believe. I believe that if we did, we'd see greater baptisms in the Holy Spirit. I do believe we would see greater healings and testimony of miracles. I do believe. Because I believe when we live a congested life, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that today? I believe that. I believe that when we as believers live a life that we're, if, if you were to put our life and you were to compare our lifestyle to some in the world, there'd be almost no difference. I think when that's the case, we've grieved the Spirit and we're lacking the true power of God because the Spirit's grieved. I don't want to try to resurface a 100-year-old doctrinal controversy. That's not, that, I don't think it's about doctrine. I think it's about the experience, growing in it, growing in grace. I want to encourage you today in your prayer time. This is almost like a believer's meeting today. I think it would please the heart of God because that's what he said, how we ought to please God for all of us to say, God, let me live a sanctified and a holy life empower me to do so. Would y'all pray with me here today? Would you make it your own prayer? Would you make it your own prayer? That's sometimes the way we do things here. Sometimes we pray for you. Sometimes we pray with you. But sometimes we just want to ask you to pray. I just want to encourage you, church family, today. As you pray, Paul said this, you ought to know how to possess your body. You know how to walk in sanctification and true holiness That you ought to live a life that's pleasing to God. That God's given you the Holy Spirit. Don't reject this doctrine. When you you used to watch certain shows, and all of a sudden now, you think, no, I don't think I should. That's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. That's the maturation of your faith. That's the fruit of sanctification in your life. When you no longer want to listen to that old country music or all that old rock music and you keep your gospel radio station on air one or something akin to that because you want your mind continually stayed upon the Lord, that's sanctification working in your life. When you get up in the morning and you say, you know what, I don't think I can dress that way. Maybe that's a little too revealing. Maybe there's, maybe I just don't, I, you know, I, I don't want to get caught up into the legalism side of that. But, you know, I just, want to, I just want to guard myself from that. You know what that is? That's sanctification working in your life. When, when, when you begin to say, you know what, God, I'm not going to tell those jokes any longer. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not even going to listen to them. 
somebody on my office or at my job is telling that, if I can, I'm going to slide to a corner somewhere so I don't have to hear that. You say, what is that, Pastor? That's sanctification working in your life. That's you just simply saying, I know you can't be taken out of the world, but you can be sanctified in the midst of the world. And that's what Jesus said. He said, sanctify them according to truth. And Father, that's my prayer for my church family. Father, whether it's a crisis experience like Wesley taught, or whether or not it's a progressive sanctification like Durham taught. God, I, I can't reach certain uh, conclusions exactly here today, but I just pray, sanctify us as a fellowship. Sanctify my life, God. Here I am, Lord. I present myself to you. God, let sin. Somebody pray that with me today.